0: here with you this morning. Um, I trust you were blessed by uh, Jared last week as he brought the word. Um, Beth and I were away at a a pastor and wives conference, and uh, something the the GCC puts on uh, every year. Um, They kind of have two focuses, planting churches and strengthening leaders, Um, and I appreciate the second one deeply. Um, Basic... uh, basic philosophy that healthier pastors have healthier churches, and so um, just a real gift for us to be able to be away and do that. I'll talk a little more about that um, this afternoon. Um, this morning is uh, is Family Worship Sunday, and uh, and I hope, I pray this morning, I spent time praying for this, that, that you would approach that with a sense of uh, optimism, um, that this would be a joyful thing. I get it. It's chaos, and, and it's Um, It's a little busier, it's a little bit noisier, um, but church, it's a beautiful thing to have the family together uh, as we worship, as we hear from God's Word, and so um, I just would ask you, embrace that with some optimism. And, uh, and know that as a church, we get it. Kids are a little noisy. You, you might have to grab one by the ear and work your way out for a few minutes. That's okay. Um, we love it. We're all in the same battle together. And, uh, and so I'm um, so glad to have the kids in with us. Kids, I hope you got a fill-in this morning. Did you all get one of the little handouts? If you didn't get one, um, put your hand up and we will get one to you. Um, I know some of the grown-ups, all my kids missed out. Uh, I know some of the grown-ups like them too. That's awesome. There's a bunch of them. Um, and kids, I have uh, candy for you after the service. If you come see me, if you fill it all in, um, I would love to, uh, to reward you for that because God's word is sweet. And so well, let's make those uh, go together. Um, Genesis chapter 3. Um, go ahead and turn there with me. Back into the book of Genesis. If you don't have a Bible on you, maybe you left it at home, maybe you don't have one, just again, put up your hand and uh, and one of our ushers will get you a Bible. That's even more important than the fill in. Um, We want you to have God's Word open in front of you. Uh, It's all I got this morning. Uh, I have no great wisdom, I have nothing to offer. All I have is God's Word, and we want to come together under the Word of the Lord. And I want you to look down and see in front of you, this isn't isn't John's idea, this is is God's word. And so that's that's the authority here this morning. Um, I'm excited to be back into Genesis. Um, It was great to kind of start the year talking about prayer and kind of refocusing our hearts on that as we start into a new year. Um, But, you know, after just a couple of weeks of being out of a book. I, I start to, like, break out in hives. Uh, I get itchy. I want to get back to, to working through uh, the book of Genesis, and uh, there's just some good, good stuff here. Um, if you remember from pre-Christmas, um, we kind of broke off in about of a bit of a weird spot, right? We're right smack in the middle uh, of Genesis chapter 3, um, and uh, we're coming in in the middle of this section that's probably set off in your Bible as uh, uh, distinct, kind of blocked out, um, this section called The Curse. Just to recap where we've been so far, very very briefly, chapter 1, right, is God's, and you want to guess? Kids, want to fill that in? It's what? Chapter 1 is God's creation. Good guess. How did you get there? Good job. Um, God's creation, right? God made this beautiful world and everything in it. And he steps back and he says, behold, it is all very good, right? Genesis 2, then, is God's provision. God's provision. He takes Adam and Eve and he puts them in the Garden of Eden. And he, he gives them all of the abundance of food and beauty and everything they need. And it's wonderful. They have a relationship with him. They have it all right there. Uh, he gives them this, this mandate, right, to... Uh, To keep the garden, to be fruitful and multiply and and fill the earth. Essentially, the the garden was just to keep expanding out as they filled it. And then chapter 3 is where it all goes wrong. We see God's creation and God's provision and then man's, anyone else want to guess? Uh Uh-oh. Sin. You guys are too good at the back. That's all right. That's good. Man's sin, right? This is the section that we call the fall. The fall the serpent enters into the garden. He tempted Adam and Eve, and they ate the fruit from the tree that God had forbidden. Um, and at that point, um, the, the story of Genesis goes from, it was good, right? We're looking back. This is what it was supposed to be. It's all beautiful and wonderful, To Well, it was good, and now it's twisted. Now it's corrupted. Now it's broken. And so um, that that section, the first part of Genesis 3 is the fall, and that brings us to the section we call the curse. The curse. God is laying out the consequences of what sin in the world will be like. This is what the, the new broken world is, is going to look like, and, and it's painful, and it's ugly. And again, we're right in the middle of this section called the curse. It's, it's broken down into three sections, and so um, the first Um, verses 14 and 15, was God explaining to the serpent, this is the curse for you, serpent. And then verse 16 uh, is God explaining the curse to Eve and and how sin will affect women in particular. Then today, we're going to look at verses 17 through 19, uh, and this is the curse coming to land on Adam. And uh, this is what the Lord says to Adam. So, Follow along with me as I read Genesis chapter 3, starting in verse 17. And to Adam, he, that's God, said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field, by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to the dust you shall return. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it is trustworthy and true. Um, And even here, as we look at the book of Genesis and the the foundations of truth that you lay, helping us understand our world as it was meant to be and as it is in its current state. God, you know we are often slow to hear and hard of heart. We don't want to hear about death. We don't want to hear about toil. We don't want to hear about the repercussions of our sin. We want to keep these things at arm's length. We want to think of it out there. God, give us eyes to see it in us. Help us to see your word in our own lives. Lord, that by your spirit, your word would, as you have intended, would cut deep. Lord, that we would be um, encouraged and built up and strengthened, that the weary would be blessed. But Lord, that we would also be brought low that where we are proud and where we are ignorant or where we are um, holding on to sin, God, that you would um, graciously crush us in that. And in it all, Lord, help us to see you in your word. Lord, that we would see um, your glorious faithfulness and righteousness and holiness and mercy and grace. We would see the wonder of Christ with fresh eyes. Uh, as we think about the sin in this world. So, Father, would you speak through me this morning? Lord, I pray that anything that I have to say that is not true to your word, that is not of you, that those those words would just fall to the ground and be left. Um, But, God, that your word would go forward, that you would speak. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. What's a pretty familiar quote was Benjamin Franklin, who first said, uh, In this world... Nothing is certain except what? You know it? Death and, death and taxes, right? That's not exactly where we're going this morning, but it's, it's real close. It's real close. We look at this curse of sin on Adam, and we see these two themes, work and the futility of work, and what better shows the futility of work than having it all taken away in taxes. Um, work and death. Gentlemen, uh, I'm sure we've all had that same feeling. Discouragement, fear. No, no doubt some of the ladies too, but I think the men just a little more pointedly. Um, all you do is work. You grind and you toil and you work and you get home for the weekend and there's more work to be done there. And before you know it, you're waking up again Sunday morning and it feels just exactly like, I said Sunday, I meant Monday. Monday. Sunday morning is a good morning. Monday morning, and it feels just exactly like last Monday. Here we go again. We're back onto this rotten treadmill that never goes anywhere, and the, the weeks begin to blend into years, and and the work you do is never complete. There's no, there's no progress. There's no end to this. I'm just spinning my tires, and that's just my lot in life, and where does this and I'm just going to work and work and work until the day I die. So what's the point? <sighs> Welcome to the curse. There it is. This is the, the world twisted by sin that we live in. It's not hard for us um, to look at, at work and understand the curse there. It's not hard for us to look at the reality of death and understand the curse there. And yet, as we, as we look at these, as we see them in Scripture, um, I think it is hard to understand it correctly. I think there's a, a balance and a, and a battle there to, to understand this biblically. It's not that simple. It's not that simple at all. The reality is, we live under this curse, and, and, and living under this curse, sometimes all we see is the curse. The curse becomes this kind of dominant lens through which we view the, the world and, and, and all, all of our lives. And, and that's not totally wrong. The, the curse is, is pervasive. It is everywhere, but it's not everything, right? The reality is the curse comes to rest right in the midst of God's blessing. And God's blessings come right in the middle of the curse. So I want to just take a closer look at Genesis 3, 17 to 19 and, and show you what I mean by that. This, this idea uh, of the curse in the blessing and the blessing in the curse. So the first thing we have to get down on, um, the first thing we see is the source of the curse, the source of the curse. Now on one hand, the source of the curse is pretty simple, it's sin. That pointed, that plain and simple, but, but let's get a little more specific on that. The Lord addresses Adam, and, and he says to Adam, because you've listened to the voice of your wife and eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you, and he goes on. We often get fixated on the tree. What's with the tree? What's with that fruit? Why was that fruit such a big deal? It wasn't about the fruit. It wasn't a special tree. It was about obedience. It was about trusting the Lord and and submitting to him. It was about letting God be God and us be creatures, honoring him. But men, notice the details here. It's going to sting a little bit this morning. Did for me anyways. First, that Adam is responsible. Adam is responsible. The Lord holds Adam uniquely responsible. Look at this. In, in verse 14, God speaks to the serpent. The words, because you have done this, but, but this, that's Satan's curse. That's kind of a different thing. That affects him negatively. To the woman, now he's addressing humanity. Verse 16, um, he doesn't say why. He simply tells her that, that there will be pain in childbirth. And that there's going to be trial and, and trouble uh, in marriage. But then to Adam, to the man, he says, not only he he gives the the longest, most detailed curse, a curse including death, which last I checked, uh, hits men and women, but he also opens with this pointed phrase. This is because he ate of the fruit, and, and even specifically because he listened to the voice of his wife. Boy, we can run with that. Honey, I'm not supposed to listen to you. I wasn't listening. That's what, let's not go down that road. We'll clear that up later. Adam and Eve both ate from the tree. In fact, Eve ate first. She started it. Adam even tries to throw her under the bus there. It was the woman. You gave her to me. It's, it's your fault or her fault. It's not my fault. But back in verse 9, right after that first sin, the Lord comes into the garden, and what does he do? He calls out to the man. Adam, where are you? I have business with you. And he says here, because you have eaten. All the verbs here are are masculine singular. He's not talking to them both. He's talking to Adam. It's not that Eve's not responsible for her own sin. She is. Absolutely she is. She's held accountable for that. But Adam's position, and and therefore Adam's responsibility, was unique. This is what we call the doctrine of original sin. Original sin right here. When Adam sinned, his original sin, his first sin, brought corruption and guilt of sin onto the whole human race. Once we come into the the New Testament, this becomes even a little more clear. Romans 5, 12, Paul unpacks this. He tells us that it was through one man that sin came into the world and death through sin. And why one man? Why not one woman? Why not one couple? Well, because Adam had a unique position, a unique responsibility. Satan tempted and lied. Eve was deceived, but the fall of humanity came through Adam because Adam rebelled against God, because Adam chose to reject God's authority and step out on his own, the whole of humanity is brought into conflict with God. By Adam's sin, the guilt and the corruption of sin infect all of humanity. Because God had made Adam responsible. Um, Adam was created first. Adam... Uh, it was given the job to, to, to guard and to keep the garden. That was his responsibility. Look at the, the progression back in chapter 2, verse 7. God forms Adam out of the dust. Verse 15, the Lord put Adam in the garden, gives him the command to, to work it and to keep it, and the mandate to, to, um, to, 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 to guard the garden. And then verses 16 and 17, the Lord told Adam, you shall eat from any tree in the garden. But the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For the day you eat of it you will surely die. Adam is given the rules of the garden. And then, then, verse 18, the Lord says, hey, it's not good that man should be alone. And he creates a a helper fit for him. He created Eve. He created the woman. Out of the dirt like Adam? No, out of the rib of Adam, out of his side. It's all very picturesque. Still created with all honor and dignity, still created equally in the image of God, but created as a helper. Adam was responsible, Adam was the head, and she is his helper. A perfect helper, a good helper, fit for him, a beautiful thing. As we begin to see this picture, that the moment of the fall, the moment of that first sin, um, there's just so much more going on. Right? It's, it's not about teeth breaking the skin of the fruit. At that point, well before that, was already the abdication of Adam, the laziness, the passiveness, the, the inaction of Adam. And so when, when Eve bit the fruit, Adam was already implicated. And here, gentlemen, we ought to take notice. This is a little unique takeaway. Um, for the men this morning. Look back at Genesis 3, 6. All of a sudden, these, these words come with, with a little more condemnation. Or they hit a little bit harder. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and the tree was a desire to make one wise, she took of its fruit and she ate, and she gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. He was with her. He was there. The whole time he was sitting there right beside, close enough that she could just give some to him. He wasn't mentioned previously. Satan is tempting. Eve is lying to her. Eve is trying to repeat the, the command of the tree in the garden. She gets it wrong. She, she bumbles it through, and, and, and Satan is, is attacking her, continues to, to lie and deceive, and we hear nothing from Adam who was with her. He was there, right there the whole time, and, and he said, and he did nothing, nothing that is except listen to the voice of his wife. Now, that's not a condemnation against Eve, that's a condemnation against Adam. He was passive. He was following when he should have been active. He should have been leading. He should have been stepping up and saying, hey, serpent, <laughs> you leave her out. of You talk to me. I'm the one that is protecting this garden. You got you to fight to pick. It, it comes to me. No. Now he's sitting back. Gentlemen, how often do we do the same? Then it is your job to... Guard and to keep your home. You're the head of your household. Ephesians 5, the Lord plays this out for us. Wives are called to to submit to their husbands and to honor them. Husbands are called to, to love and to lead their wives as Christ loves and leads the church. How are we doing at that? That's a high bar. We have God's commands. You hold them in your hand. They sit on your lap right now. They're, they're there for the taking. Do you know them? Do you know what God requires of you? Do you know what a God-honoring marriage and, and family and it should look like? Are, are you the one stepping up to, to lead your family in that direction? Satan, through relentless pressure from the world around us is constantly tempting and pulling and grabbing, constantly um, trying to pull us away. Away from prioritizing the church. Away from the things of the Lord. Away from seriously discipling our children. Away from uh, distinctly Christian culture in the home. And remember, the Original temptation. Satan doesn't typically tempt by things that are ugly and gross, right? He tempts with things that look good for food, delight to the eyes, desirable to make one wise. This is important for my family. The the world is saying that my family needs to be A, B, and C. I need to do those things, and I'll think later about what God wants my family to be, or surely God wants my family to be this, because that's what the world says is successful and important. He's deceitful. He's crafty. He's going to tempt you with things that the world will honor. Your neighbors and friends will look in and say, good job, well done with your family. They'll applaud you for it. Are we guarding and leading our families toward holiness, toward Christ-likeness? That's tough. Or are we like our first father, Adam, just kind of sitting by helplessly, listening, as the current of the world just kind of pulls our family along? Oh, it happens so fast. You listen to a, your wife. You listen to the culture. You listen to the pressures of this world. You listen to the, the desires and pleasures of your own heart. You listen to the, the, the pulling from your children. And Genesis uses that phrase. He listened to his wife as a condemnation of Adam's being passive. That's the point there. Don't, you know, don't take that too far. Um, God has given you your wife as a gift. As a gift, she's a, a helper fit for you. Many of your wives are godly and, and wise and doing everything they can to help you and your family to, to move in a God-honoring direction. That's beautiful. Praise God for our wives. That's not ultimately her responsibility. It's yours. Um, our family um, loves to go canoeing. Um, those of you who, who paddle, you'll get this. I hope everybody gets it a little bit. Those who have been on the, on the river with us the last few years um, will get this. Um, the person in the front, in the bow, right? Their job is steady forward motion. Just paddle forward. Give the boat momentum. The person in the back, in the stern, is the rudder. You get to steer. You give direction. And there's a reason for that. From, from the back of the boat, um, with a flick of the wrist, you have control. You have, you have leverage on the whole boat. You can, you can spin that boat in circles with very little effort. You put your paddle in the water at the back, one little push, and you're, you're gone. Now, I'm, I'm pretty comfortable with a paddle in my hand. I can put one of my younger kids in the back, and I can sit in the front, and I can still turn that boat, sort of, mostly, Um, But it's a battle. It's like five or six hard strokes, which from the back would have been an easy easy push. It's hard work. Some of your wives um, are sitting in the front of the boat, and they're working real hard to steer it. They're fighting to, to keep it straight, and kudos to them. Some of them are doing an amazing job of it. Again, praise the Lord for godly wives, but it shouldn't be their job. Like it or not, You're in the stern, man. You didn't choose it, and you can't refuse it. God has put you there. He has made you the head of your home. You have the place of influence, the place of authority. Um, It's it's your job to know God's word, to take that leadership, to steer the boat. Yeah, there's sometimes um, we absolutely need our wives. Again, those of you who've been on the river, you know what happened. That one wave hits, and your boat goes cockeyed, and you see the next one coming. you need your wife's help to help right that boat quickly. That's, that's good and right. It's a team effort. But it's our responsibility in the stern. Appreciate your wife, love your wife as the gift of God that she is, the helper for you. Um, but you honor her best. You bless her and serve her the best by, by letting her take the role that God has given her and waking up from your nap and picking up a paddle Steering your family the way God intended. Adam's first failure was not an active sin, but a passive laziness. And again, men, we're so tempted by that today. Are you leading your family well? Are you guarding and cultivating the hearts of your children? Leading your family in family devotions? Open up the word. Read together. Are you leading through discipling? And, and, and instruction in the home. Oh man, it's so easy to just, I just want behavior modification, right? I just want 20 minutes of silence. I just want you in bed on time. I just want you to do what I say when I say it. Sure, that's fine, but are we training the heart? Are we leading through prioritizing church and the, the things of the Lord? Or are we leading through being careful and intentional gatekeepers of of what what shows and and music and movies and social media come into your house. Our kids should be weird in this culture, guys. Our kids should be weird at school. Our kids should be weird when they they go away to camp or wherever it is. Our kids all came home. Mom, they all have Snapchat. They're all chatting together. And we're like, yep, and you're weird. Good. (laughs) That's the way it's going to be. It ain't coming in our house. Um. And it's scary. That's a high bar. There's a lot to be done there. I get it. I'm preaching this sermon and I'm seeing all kinds of things in my own life. I'm like, I got to pull up my socks over here. I got to do this a little better. But there's no way around it. Embrace the help of the wisdom of your wife and take loving, sacrificial servant leadership in your homes, gentlemen. All right, back on track. (laughs) It's the source of sin. Adam's sin, the warning that we take from it as husbands, um, take the, the leadership of, uh, in our homes, but let's get back to the specifics of the curse itself. And so we see um, Adam's sin becomes significant, and, and the first thing we see in the curse, we see the curse in the blessing, the curse in the blessing. As I said, this, this idea of the curse is, is complicated, Right? Because the curse of sin lands right smack in the middle of God's blessing. And and if you look at the end of verse 17, um, down to verse 19, um, the Lord says this to Adam, Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat of the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Bread. Because of the, the curse of sin, Adam would have pain pain. The word "pain" there is actually the same word from over in verse sixteen. Um, the woman would have pain in childbearing, the man would have pain in work. And like we use the word labor for both, right? Um, there's, a, there's a connection here, and, and I think that 's kind of the first tip off that That what we're talking about is a curse, but it comes in the middle of a blessing. And that's easier as we're we're talking about childbearing. Um, We don't get that one quite so wrong so quickly. It's clear, it's obvious to us, children are a blessing, right? This is a great gift the Lord has given, but I don't think we realize it so quickly that work is a blessing. Work is a blessing from God. So just as Eve was given the the blessing to produce life, and and because of sin, that blessing would now have pain in it, so Adam is given this blessing of working and keeping the garden, of subduing the earth and bringing order out of chaos, of producing beauty and and food by the work of his hands, and, and now that work, which was given as a blessing, would have a curse in it, but, but work itself came as a blessing. Now, I understand um, you might be a little bit skeptical there. <laughs> you haven't been to my job. You don't know the guys I work with. You don't know my boss. Work is not a blessing. Well, hold on. Consider this. Let's lay some groundwork. First, work came before the fall, okay? Genesis 2.15, before sin when everything was good and perfect and right, this is the picture that we look at to go, this is what our world was created to be. And it says, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. He's given a job. Before the fall, before sin, as everything was perfect, he's given a job to do. And if that's not enough for you, not only did work come before the fall, but work will remain into eternity. Work will not end when the Lord returns, we will be active in, in producing and in, in, in doing work. Isaiah 65, 17, God says that He will create a new heavens and a new earth. And then down in verse 21, it says, They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They're building, they're planting. And so let's think about this a little more carefully. Work itself is not the curse. Work is good. Work is God's blessing. We were created to work. In fact, working is part of what it means to be made in the image of God because God works. God creates. God is productive. Work is not a necessary evil. Uh, Much to the contrary, Um, Colossians 3, verses 23-24, listen to this. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord. Whatever you do, it doesn't matter what your job is, it doesn't matter what you're up to, work heartily as for the Lord, not for men, knowing that from the Lord you'll receive the inheritance as your reward, you are serving the Lord Christ. You're serving Christ. That word serving there tells be translated worshiping. Work is worship. It's not a necessary evil. Work is worship. So work is not the curse. Work is a blessing, but curse came into that blessing. It infected and corrupted what God had given as good. It brought pain into our work. Work is a blessing, but toil is the curse, right? So we look back at uh, Isaiah 65. What does their work produce? Well, they're going to build houses and inhabit them, right? That. That's the opposite of toil and frustration. And they're going to plant vineyards and they're going to eat the fruit. It's going to, the work is going to have its desired effect. It's, it's going to be fruitful and productive. Toil is the opposite. Toil is the word we use for exhaustion, for frustration, for that grinding, burdensome weariness of work. That's the curse. Work is a joy when it isn't Toil. Right? It's a gift when there's no futility in it. It's a blessing when there's no frustration. Adam was given the the mandate to to work and to keep the garden and and the ground, the earth, the garden was was working with him. It was all going nicely. And that changed with the fall. Back in in 2.9, it says, because um, it says that God made to, to spring up. Every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. Now later here in 3.18, that same word is used again. That word that's translated spring up, now it's translated bring forth, but it's the same word. So originally the ground would, would spring up with every good thing that's just coming to life. And there's fruit trees and there's flowers and it's beautiful and it's good. Now the world would spring up with thorns and thistles. Nothing to eat. It's not good and beautiful. It brings pain and frustration. So verse 19 says, By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Now there's a a figure of speech here that's used twice um, where where the part is used to represent the whole, right? It's a small piece that represents more. So the sweat of the face, um, he's not just saying only your face will sweat or that your face sweat somehow brings about food. Um, It's hard work, right? Your whole body's going to sweat because it's, it's toil now. And then bread is the same way here, right? He's not just speaking of bread. He's speaking of every good thing, everything we need to live from, from food and, and shelter to the basic necessities of life. So providing the necessities of life is going to be hard. It's gonna be a grind. That Sound familiar to anyone? Anybody else live in that world? We don't hate creating. We don't hate bringing order and, and structure and, and beauty. We don't hate producing something of value. What we hate is futility, toil. and We all hate it. This goes right into just who we are as humans. Shows up all over the place. You remember um, the story of Sisyphus in, uh, in Greek mythology. He cheated death twice And as his punishment from from Hades, uh, he was doomed for eternity to roll uh, a giant boulder up the hill. And it would take him all day to roll the stone up the hill. And at the end of the day, as he neared the top, the stone would roll right back down again. And the next day he would do it again. And day after day after day after day. He was doomed to an, an eternity of Monday mornings, right? Futility. Frustration, toil, that's the curse. Romans 8 speaks of how creation itself is subjected to futility by God. If you were here this past year, we went through the book of Ecclesiastes. This is the knife edge, right? The the clearest and and worst of of vanity of which Solomon wrote. Ecclesiastes 2.22. What has man From all the toil and striving of the heart with which he toils beneath the sun. For all his days are full of sorrow. His work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart doesn't rest. This also is vanity. Work under the sun, a, a job, a career apart from God. It's toil. It's vanity. It's fleeting. It's passing. It doesn't accomplish anything. You find yourself frustrated with work, tired, exhausted, beat down, discouraged. It's helpful to just think a little more clearly about that, about exactly what it is you're frustrated with. Work is not the problem. It's not actually work that you hate. Try to see the goodness of your work. See how your work is producing something of value and the beauty in it, the order out of chaos. You were created to work. As you work diligently for the Lord, that's a display of the image of God in you. That's an act of worship. We ought to embrace that and recognizing the futility in it, the toil, the sweat, the frustration. That's something else. That's the curse of sin playing its way out. That's one of the many things in this world that just screams out, this world is not right. Something's broken here. It's no longer good. Our toil is a reminder of the evil of sin. It's the evil of sin. Constantly, painfully pointing back to the reality that when we, when we rebel against God, the result is pain. It's a simple phrase we've often used with our, our children choose to sin, choose to suffer. It's that simple. Choose to sin, choose to suffer. That's the curse and the blessing of work. But that's not where it ends. That's not where it ends. It goes deeper than that. It it gets worse than that before it gets better. Not only would the ground rise up and fight against Adam, but the ground would eventually win. As God had made clear from the beginning, the result of sin would be death. This is the ultimate curse. And yet we'll see in a minute as the curse came into the blessing of work, here there is blessing that comes into the curse of death. There is blessing in the curse. So let's look first at this, this curse aspect. Um, work was originally a blessing, a, a, a part of creation from the beginning. It was, it was good and natural and right. Not so with death. Not so with death. Death is not natural. Death entered into the world as this unwelcomed intruder. It's a curse. The Lord had warned Adam, on the day you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. And in that moment, he did, in one sense, die in his relationship with the Lord being severed. Um, he, He died a spiritual death, in a sense. But he also put himself on this inevitable path toward physical death. It would happen. Back at Genesis 3, verse 19, the Lord tells Adam, by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Death will surely come for him. Romans 6 26 says, so clearly and simply the wages of sin is death. And just as every woman born under the curse um, has pain in childbirth, and every man born under the curse feels futility and frustration in work, every human will feel the sting of death. Let's just get uncomfortably specific that includes you. That includes you. Some people live their lives with a, a constant foreboding and, and fear of death. Other people seem to live with this kind of invincibility complex. Not me, I'm gonna, I'm gonna live forever. But here's the biblical reality from the mouth of God you are dust, and to dust you'll return. You're gonna die. Take a minute sneak a peek at the person on your left, have a look at the person on your right, they will both one day die. And you're no different. Two people just looked at you and thought the same thing. It's coming. Maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, but one day you will die. Because of sin, your life will come to an end. And when it does, after that, Hebrews 9, 27 says, is judgment. Just as it's appointed for man once to die, and after that comes judgment. You will die, and you will stand before the perfect, holy God to give an account of your life. You'll be judged. And it's tempting here to talk about the standard of judgment, right? How good do I need to be? How much sin is too much sin? What's the the bar by which we'll be judged? How much disobedience actually deserves hell and how much can I get away with? Um, But actually in Genesis 3, that's beside the point. It's not what he's talking about. He's making a different point here. Back to verse 17. His point is that through Adam, the curse of sin, the consequence of death comes to land on All of us. All of us. We are born into guilt and sin. Because of Adam's sin, all of his descendants will die. That's what Romans 5.12 means. It says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. In Adam, we are held accountable. Theology referred to, to Adam as our federal head. This is back to that doctrine of original sin. It matters because Adam was our head. He represented us like a president represents his country. And so Adam sinned as our head. We all sinned. When Adam declared war with God, we all as his underlings were at war with God. Death spread to all. You will die. You will face judgment and because you're born as a descendant of Adam, you're already born in sin and guilt. Psalm 51, David says, in sin did my mother conceive me. It was over from the beginning. It was over before it started. I'm not... A sinner because I do certain sinful things. No, I do certain sinful things because I am a sinner. It flows out from my corrupted, sinful heart. And although death was not part of that original creation, in one sense we say, no, death's not natural. Um, It's still undeniably true that everyone will one day die because we're all descendants of Adam. That's the curse of death. It's it's all around us. The death of a grandparent, the death of a child, the catastrophes in the the news, even the the death of a pet. It's it's ugly, it's, it's painful, it's screaming out, this world is not as it should be. It's a constant reminder of the curse, the consequence of the reality of sin, sin in this world in general and sin in our lives in particular. This is why uh, in many funerals we'll conclude at the graveside with those words ashes to ashes and dust to dust. It's a reminder of the curse. The curse of sin is death. Just for a moment, feel it. Let it settle. Don't don't run from it. Don't, don't, Don't push that feeling down. Don't evade it or ignore it or make light of it. Let that reality sit for a second. It's a curse. It's ugly. It's fearful. And yet, thankfully, graciously, death will not have the last word. Death will not have the final victory. Because in the middle of the worst of the curse, the Lord would break in with the most glorious of blessing. I understand why Many do it personally. I just would never want to end a funeral with those dreadful words. Ashes to ashes, dust to dust. That's the curse. I don't want to focus on the curse. I don't want to talk about the curse. There's a greater reality. The curse isn't the end. Praise the Lord, the curse is not the end. From Long before the curse, from before the first sin, from before the creation of Adam and Eve, before the foundations of the world were laid, the Lord already had laid out his great and glorious plan. And though death comes as the curse for sin, through death also would come the cure for sin. The curse of death would be God's tool to bring about the blessing of new life. Jesus would come and through death he would undo the sin of Adam. Adam listened to his wife rather than listening to the Lord. In the Garden of Eden, Adam did his own will rather than following the will of God. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus does the opposite. Luke twenty-two forty-one. 41, he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and he knelt down and prayed saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup From me, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. As he prayed there, submitting himself to the Father's will, doing the opposite of what Adam did, Luke 22, 44 says, And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweats became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Because of Adam's disobedience, it would be from the the sweat of his brow, from his toil that that he would work for bread until the day he died. Through Jesus' obedience, he would sweat drops of blood in the garden, and he would give himself for us as the bread of life that we may live. He's taken out from the garden, allowed himself to be arrested, beaten, mocked. Mark 15, 17 says this, they clothe him in a purple cloak and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. Crown of thorns, why thorns? What's this about? It's pointing back to the garden, it's pointing back to the curse. God is so clearly putting on display that on Jesus, on the cross, it is taking the fullness of the curse of sin. It's the curse coming to rest on the head of Jesus Christ. He did it for us, our curse on him. Galatians 3.13 puts it this way, Christ redeemed us, bought us out, rescued us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. As it is written, cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree. Where Adam would face the curse of of sin, and it would bring him to his ultimate death. Jesus would take on the curse of sin. He would die. He would be buried. And on the third day, he rose again. He rose again. He rose victorious out of the grave, having taken the, the curse on himself as God himself and as perfectly holy and without sin, born of a virgin, not born of Adam's line. By death, Jesus conquered death. He defeated the curse. The resurrection of Jesus is proof that that he overcame the curse. And now, that same principle that makes us so uncomfortable, how can it be that because of Adam's sin, as my head, I'm counted as guilty. I don't think I like that. That doesn't feel fair to me. Well, hold on a second. Don't throw that out yet. Because by that same principle, with Christ as our head, we are counted righteous. The same principle by which we are condemned is the principle by which we're saved in Christ. 1 Corinthians 15, 21. For as by a man, in the same way as by a man came death, that's Adam and the curse, by a man has come also the resurrection from the dead. For as in Adam, in the same way that in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. It's the same principle. This idea of of headship. Adam was our head and when he sinned, he sinned on behalf of everyone he represented. Everyone who's born in Adam, everyone who's a descendant of Adam is born in sin, is born under the curse into toil and pain and death and hell. But Jesus is a second Adam. He's a new creation. It's a fresh start. He's a second Adam. 1 Corinthians 15 goes on to say, verse 47 and 48, um, the first man, that's Adam, was from the earth, the man of dust. The second man, that's Jesus, is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust, his descendants. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. So the the first Adam, by his sin, brought death. Death to all those who were born in him, all of his descendants who were born of the dust. The second Adam, by his death and resurrection, brought life. Life to all those who are, what? Born in him. That is to say, Born again. Jesus comes as the the head of a new humanity, a new human race. Those who trust in Christ are a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. We we talk about salvation at such surface levels as if it's just a, I, I believe this or I believe that, and we can flip back and forth. It's a new creation. You're taken out from the descendant of Adam and made a descendant of Christ. You're born again, not of the flesh, not of dust in the lineage and likeness of Adam, but born of the Spirit, born again in the image of Christ, in the likeness of Christ. We're a new human race represented by a new head, and so just as in Adam we receive corruption and guilt and curse of sin leading to suffering and death, now in Christ we receive righteousness and holiness leading to joy and life. And just as in Adam, we began to to live out the consequences of our sinfulness in sin in Christ slowly, but surely we shed that old us and we begin to live out the consequences of our righteousness and holiness. Now in Christ, we receive this. The curse of sin is real and it's brutal and it's everywhere and it's painful. Jesus came to free us from that curse, dying in the place of all those who would trust in him, that we might be made new in him. Now, we still face the curse of sin in this world. We still live in this broken world for now, but we've been set free. We've been set free from the power of the curse that no longer has authority over us, And when Christ returns, and he will return, because he took the curse on himself, he will completely and forever rescue his own. He will raise out from the grave all those who have died. He will cover them with his perfect righteousness. They'll be rescued not only from physical death, but they'll be rescued by his righteousness through the judgment of God. And he will bring in the new heavens and the new earth. A world without toil, without suffering or sadness or brokenness, without sin or any of its devastating effects. That's the hope that we have in Christ. That is what awaits all those who who by grace through faith are born again in Him. What a glorious hope we have. Would you pray with me? Father, Lord, we see the effects of this curse so Clearly all around us, tomorrow morning, so many will wake up with a grunt. Do it all again. Some of us may even hear of the passing of friends or relatives. Some of us in this room may not even wake up tomorrow morning. The shadow of curse and toil and death hangs in heavy. Lord, we feel it. God, so often we despair, but help us to see the blessing that you have brought. Lord, I pray if there's any this morning here who don't know you, who are not born again in Christ, Father, that they would, that you would open their eyes, Lord, that you would give them eyes to see your glory in the face of Jesus Christ to see his beauty and to trust in him that they might have new life. And Lord, I pray for those of us who who are new in you and yet, God, we live with this curse all around us. We see it, we feel it. Lord, help us to fix our eyes on this glorious work that you have done, the resurrection of Christ and his coming. that we may have hope that we may live in this world as new creations free from the burden and the power of sin, growing in holiness for the glory of your name. That we would work as unto the Lord, that we would face the reality of death um, without fear, without trembling, but with victorious hope in Christ because our curse was laid on him. God, we thank you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.